Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, We thank you for the privilege of gathering together on a day like today uh, to celebrate um, your powerful resurrection. And Lord, all that that means. And although, Lord, we cannot talk about all the, the implications of that, Lord, we can spend time celebrating and focusing on certain aspects of it. And so, Lord, today, allow us to be filled uh, with your Holy Spirit to give attention to your word that it would feed us, it would guide us, it would strengthen us, it would counsel us uh, to see you afresh and to see our lives afresh in you. And Lord, that you would be glorified. And I just ask that you would allow me as your messenger, uh, Lord, to simply be your mouthpiece, that, that you would be heard and your people would be strengthened for your glory. Amen. He is risen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The end of Mark's gospel, we have this resurrection account. And of course, it's the account of three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, who was, uh, they were all going to anoint the body of Jesus. And of course, they were so full of of anticipation. Their, their hearts were heavy. They were functioning out of duty and love for Jesus, and it drove them to the tomb. But it, it, was, it was so, I might want to say, emotionally charged and packed that one of the questions that they really failed to consider was, okay, when we get there, how are we going to get in? I mean, here they are running, going together to the tomb, but how are we going to get in there? And of course, the surprise for them is the fact that when they get there, this very large stone, notice it says that in the text, it doesn't simply say, ah, there was an entrance door or something like that. The emphasis here is this, this very large stone has been rolled away, and even greater surprise when they go into the tomb, they don't see Jesus there. They see an angel. It's, it's a young man dressed in white, but we know that that's a messenger sent from God. And this this young man says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And with that encounter and with that information, they fled the tomb because they had been seized by trembling and astonishment, and they left silently, and they left afraid. The end of Mark's gospel. Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Luke's gospel ends with three post-resurrection accounts. The meeting of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the appearing of Jesus to the rest of the disciples, his ascension into heaven. Luke's account also has, sorry, John's account also has three resurrection or post-resurrection events in the upper room with Thomas where he's proving who he is. And then they're having breakfast together on the, the shores of Galilee, And of course, there's that, do you love me, passage with Peter. But Mark's gospel doesn't tell us anymore. 
It ends here at chapter 8. Now, you'll probably have in your Bibles another ending, and you'll probably have a little notation in your Bibles that there is a, a question about this ending, and most conservative scholars, theologians, uh, recognize that these were additions to Mark's gospel over the years. And so we consider here the end of Mark's gospel actually ending at, at verse 8. It's actually really interesting, kind of humorous in one sense. John MacArthur preached through the whole of the New Testament, and his last book was the gospel of Mark. And he gets to the end of Mark's gospel. And he's like, I'm not sure what to do with this. Because I'm not sure if this is actually God's word or not God's word. Well, the content that has been added to Mark's gospel still is supported by the other gospels. There's nothing there that's questionable. But the real emphasis here is that this gospel ends in a way that is really unusual. Because it says here, for they were what? Afraid. It ends with fear. It's an abrupt end. It doesn't have really any resolve like the other Gospels. It just ends with three women running in the garden, seized with trembling and astonishment, consumed with fear. But I would suggest to you that there are some clues in this passage that give us some reason and direction as to what Mark is doing. Again, notice the words of the angel here. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And here's the key. Just as he told you. Now, friends, that's a, that's a loaded statement. Because those who were there, the women, even with the disciples, had been fashioned and shaped by Jesus and his teaching. We usually think that Jesus went around just with his disciples. But understand that along with the disciples, there were women who were part of the entourage, and the, the women were also hearing and listening to things that Jesus was saying. And so, just as he told you, the angel here is connecting the event of the resurrection with what Jesus had told the women and the disciples. And so, the reader of Mark's gospel, the, the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome, are to reflect over the gospel as a whole. And we, then, as readers, generations later, are to do the same thing. We're to reflect on this gospel as a whole and recall what it was that Jesus had told them. And, having done that, to answer the question, we need to consider the gospel of Mark in, in, in its totality, to take it as a whole and to see what is driving now into the Passion Week and into this statement. What is it that Jesus had told them? What had happened in his life that is important for them to see? Now think uh, along with me also, Mark's gospel um, is really broken up into two parts. The first section of Mark's gospel, chapters 1 through 8, primarily are focusing on answering the question, who is Jesus? The second half of Mark's gospel is primarily focusing on answering the question, what did Jesus come to do? 
And this gospel is a fast-paced gospel. And you'll notice that by the word immediately. Just Mark's moving from section to section to story to story. Boom, 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 boom. Now, it used to be when a new believer came to Christ that we would say, when they ask, hey, where should I start in the Bible? We often would say the Gospel of John. But in today's culture, in the, the Snapchat, Facebook culture, where everything is fast-paced and moving and short little sound bites, Mark's gospel meets the need of this hour. Because it moves. And it draws your attention to who Jesus is. He moves quickly. He gives short accounts. He gives detailed accounts. He covers 21 days in the life of, uh, of Christ. In particular, his Passion Week. And so this morning, as we begin our time, I just want to lay out just a proposition for the bigger picture of Mark that will drive us ultimately to the resurrection and beyond. We're going to understand here that that the the aim of Mark is to, to compel those who are reading this gospel to ultimately be following Jesus, the Son of God. That's a huge statement. That seems somewhat general. You say, well, duh, you have to follow Jesus. It's the gospel. But that was the point of the gospel. This is, I want to say, a gospel tract. This was a, an accounting of the events and the teaching and the life of Jesus with a purpose and with a goal that people would read it and ultimately believe and follow Jesus as the very Son of God. And he is the the Son who will suffer. He's the Son who serves. And he is the Son, we'll see, that will give his life a ransom for many. So let's begin uh, at the beginning of this gospel. How does this gospel begin? Mark 1, verse 1. And we're just going to walk our way through this gospel, and we're going to end up at the resurrection and see then why it is that they are trembling and in awe and afraid. How does the gospel begin? Look at verse 1, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how he starts. Here's the beginning. Here's how this story, this account is going to be unfolding. At the beginning, it's a story, it's an accounting It's a record. It's a good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And so Mark is seeking to show Jesus in a particular way. And so the question that we have then for the the first part of Mark's gospel, as I've already said, is this. Who is Jesus? Now, we're living in in a day where the person of Christ is being distorted not only by our culture, and we would expect that, but even in the context of the church. So in our culture, if they want to speak about Jesus, they typically will choose to view him as a a man of great compassion, a man of love, a a revolutionary that that spoke against oppression or injustice and and hatred. might want to say an older form of Gandhi, so to speak wrapped up in a Mother Teresa, kind of a a good doer of the age. And and at best, they will say that his example is one to follow, his example of being a human being. 
and to be kind and to be loving. And, and the pictures are of Jesus sitting with, with children on his lap and, and just doing kindness and caring for those who are needy. And certainly that's part of the story. We don't want to deny that that's important. We love that side of him. But that is not a complete picture of who he is. And oftentimes what they do is they choose only to pull the facts about Jesus that suit their fancy to promote their own ideology or agendas. Now sadly, this is also true in the church. I've heard similar things out of the mouths of people who claim to be followers of Christ. Those who profess Jesus to be their savior oftentimes will betray what Jesus says or what he communicates in his word. And they'll come to a conclusion and they'll say things like this. Well, my Jesus wouldn't say that. Or my Jesus wouldn't expect that of me. And what's happened here is that there's this feeling that we can recreate Jesus in our own image to suit our own fancies, even in the body of Christ. And part of that, friends, is because many within the body of Christ are not people of the book. There's kind of like this, this Christian cultural idea of Jesus rather than one that, that flows out of the texts of Scripture. And so all of that is important for us to understand because Jesus is the focus of God's Word, and we're compelled to learn from God's Word who He is. You've heard me say this before. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached or proclaimed. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. That's a very simple way of kind of wrapping your hands around the Bible and seeing that Jesus is the center of it all, but he is the center of it all. It is all either pointing to him or looking back at him as that savior, as that sacrifice once for all. So now Mark begins to, to lay out a picture for us. Who is this Jesus? Is Jesus just a man? Is he Elijah the prophet come back to life? Or, or come back, I should say? Is he another prophet of Israel? Is he just another revolutionary looking to revolt against Rome? And there were many that, that came up and rose up and Rome suppressed. Is he a self-serving cult leader? Something that you'd make some kind of a 16-week TV show about? Is he a, a madman with crazy ideas? Or are we thinking about this all wrong? Is he, in fact, truly the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ? Is he truly the Son of God? And what becomes clear in Mark's Gospel is that those who encounter Jesus are amazed at what they hear. I mean, they're just amazed. It's not just like, wow, that was cool. It's like, no, there's something different about this person. Just, just listen. Seven times we find this. 
He's casting out demons, and people are amazed. Well, yeah, you should be. They're amazed at his teaching, but not just his teaching, but the fact that he's teaching how? With authority. This is a young man. They're amazed at his healing, his healing of people with diseases, real, verifiable diseases. He's claiming to forgive sins. They're amazed when he's speaking in parables. And the disciples in particular are amazed when he calms the wind and the sea. Clearly, there is something unique and unusual about this young man. And certainly, all of those, those events that surround those statements have unique things in and of themselves, but they're all pointing to the fact and identifying the fact that Jesus is this Son of God. So those who are listening and observing are saying things like, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? Or, or, or this, we never saw anything like this. Or who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When was the last time you went fishing and a storm rose up and you said, stop it? Well, you may have said it, but nothing happened. It just got wetter and stormier, probably. Or, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? And then his fame spread everywhere. In chapter 1, verse 28, it says, his ministry began in Galilee, but you go to chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and it tells us there it continued on in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Edomia, beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Now, remember, this was not a Facebook culture. There weren't tweets going around saying, hey, Jesus is in Capernaum. Quickly, hurry if you want to see him. It was all word of mouth, by foot, going out to various places and the message that Jesus was giving and the ways that he went into communities and he healed the sick and he taught and he encouraged the people, those were all being told about him and people were anticipating his coming. And all of this Mark is showing us to, to reveal to us who Jesus is. So what is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Well, I've already answered it for you, but let's let Mark speak. Let's hear what he has to say, because there's just a number of witnesses. And a witness is, is someone who's giving credible, factual information to support uh, 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 an argument, okay? And here we have it, just a few of them. I have six of them that I'll just share with you. Uh, here, all right. So the testimony, first of all, is of John the Baptist. And what do we have there? John the Baptist, we find this. It says, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Now, you've got to put that into context, because John the Baptist had already been preaching. And he already had a crowd. And he was baptizing all sorts of people. And John the Baptist is saying, hey, listen, <laughs> It isn't about me. There's someone else coming, and he's mightier than me. And he's pointing to Jesus. Then, of course, in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we have the Father speaking from heaven, and he says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is at Jesus' baptism. 
So here we have, we have the Father in heaven speaking and putting his hand of, a, of approval on Jesus saying, he's my son. And I am well pleased with him. Then, of course, there's a testimony from really an unusual source. And I, I just read it a couple of minutes ago from uh, chapter 1, verse 24, and it's the unclean spirits. Here's what they say when Jesus is encountering them. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> That's testimony. That's witness. Or how about Jesus himself? Here he comes. And he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, get up and walk. Now, here, or your sins are forgiven, right? Here's the point. The Son of Man is an Old Testament concept. And Jesus, in identifying himself as the Son of Man, is identifying himself as the Son of God, as deity himself. This was a powerful statement. Here's another testimony, the testimony of Peter. Chapter 8, verses 27 and 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, I'm still trying to identify who Jesus is. And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, foot and mouth Peter, opens his mouth. And he answers him and says, you are the Christ. He got the answer right, but he had no idea what he was talking about. Because he was looking for a different kind of Messiah. But it's still a testimony. It's still evidence to identify that Jesus is this Christ. And then the, the, the punch note of, of Jesus' identity comes at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15 and verse 39. Jesus has been hanging on the cross, and he dies in such a way in the presence of a centurion and the centurion says this, truly, this man was the son of God. Now you see what Mark is doing. Mark is giving evidence from all different angles. And all those different angles that are unexpected. You're not expecting a centurion to say, truly, this was the son of God. You're not expecting a, a, you know, a, a demonic spirit to say, you're the Holy One of God. You're not expecting that kind of evidence, but Mark is giving that to his readers because he wants them to know who Jesus is. So, question, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Now, the second part of Mark's gospel is, is unfolding. This is how the gospel then unfolds. We've seen the picture of who Jesus is. Now, Mark wants to answer another question. The question is, what has Jesus come to do? Or to ask the question in maybe a little different way. Why did Jesus come? What difference does his coming make? I loved hearing you guys speak in that video and just, just articulating how the resurrection has impacted your life. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm preaching here to people who know and understand the impact of the resurrection, and I'm thankful for that. But, but sometimes people you know, ask the question, you know, did, did, did Jesus come to stir up a revolution against Rome? 
Did he come to, to raise an army as a revolutionary? Did he come to, to set a, an example of what kindness and love look like? Did he come to end wars and bring world peace? Did he come to bring prosperity to all? Did, did he come to set up a new religion? If Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, if Jesus is the promised King foretold in the Old Testament, then how will he establish his reign? And how will he overthrow the Roman rule in Israel? And to, to understand why Jesus is coming, in particular as Mark unfolds it, we have three passages that really just clearly say it. And you've heard this before, but I want us to walk through it again. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is a, this passage where, where um, Peter is declaring that Jesus is the Christ. But I want you to notice here, while they're in Caesarea Philippi, in the northern part of Israel, here's what Jesus says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And hear this. And he was stating the matter plainly. So this wasn't some kind of like, you know, guarded statement or, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem no, he's like, I'm letting you know very clearly this is exactly what's going to happen. But the disciples just don't comprehend it. In fact, Peter doesn't like it at all. And he rebukes Jesus. Because see, Peter was a man of his culture, his religious culture of that day, who understood and was expecting the Messiah to come and to be a a ruler that would overthrow Rome and reestablish Jerusalem and Israel as a kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And, you know, even to this day, Judaism does not comprehend a suffering Messiah. They reject Isaiah 53 that talks about a servant who would suffer and die. They say, oh, that's talking about Israel. It's not talking about the Messiah. But Jesus then, having heard Peter, rebukes him. Because this is what he has come to do. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here, Jesus is, is counteracting man's ideas and thinking about who he is. He's saying, no, 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 no. I am the Son of God, and here's what I've come to do. The next passage, of course, is just one chapter over, Mark chapter 9. And here they are passing through Galilee, Jesus with his disciples. And it says in verse 30, And they went on from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now, I don't know if you know exactly what you're going to be doing over the next few days. But Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what's going to be happening. And this is the second time that he's told them. And it says right after that, but they, the disciples, did not understand the saying. They were afraid even to ask him. 
I think it's good for us to put on the, the perspective of, of the disciples. We, we've heard the resurrection before. So we have it in our head. We, we have an understanding of it. But imagine if you hadn't. And even you are humbling yourself before this master. And he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. But in three days I'm going to rise again. You'd be saying, well, how in the world is that going to happen? That sounds really crazy to me. They're trying to put it all together. Now, we have the benefit of seeing the rest of the story. But from their perspective, this is hard to understand. It just didn't make any sense. Now turn to Mark 10 and verses 33 through 34. I'm going to begin at verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were what? Anyone there with me? They were amazed. There's that word again. And those who followed were what? A, a fearful or afraid. Okay, so those those words. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. you got lots more detail in there, right? I mean, there's this, this, the, the, the unfolding of the events now are, are being more specific, and he's even giving somewhat of a timeline. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn me to death. And then deliver me over to the Gentiles, right? To Pontius Pilate, the Romans. And they will mock, and they'll spit, and they'll flog, and they'll kill. These are all things that we see unfolding in the Passion Week. What Jesus is promising is going to happen, will happen, did happen. So these, these, I put it into four categories. All this being put together, they're delivered, this, he's delivered into the hands of men, the religious leaders will reject him, condemn him, hand him over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles ultimately, even some of the Jews, will, will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and three days later, Jesus will rise again. Now, let me say this. It is really, really difficult to preach a resurrection sermon without bringing up the cross. And honestly, it's really hard to bring a sermon on the cross without what? Bringing up the resurrection. In fact, it's not truly honest and complete to preach a sermon on Christmas that doesn't embrace the cross or the resurrection because they're all intertwined because Jesus was born to die, but he was also born to live. All of it works together. So sometimes we kind of we cross-pollinate on these topics on a day like today. They all have bearing, though, on the impact and the importance of the resurrection. But all of these accounts end with, and he will rise again, when? On the third day. All of them. And Jesus is saying this before it even happens, before he even gets into the Passion Week. 
Now, for further clarity, we have one more verse, which I think is the key verse of the whole book of Mark, and that's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We will probably memorize this together as a church. But it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That giving of his life as a ransom for many is pointing us to the cross. But as you heard here this morning, by testimony, even by song, the cross accomplished the payment, but the resurrection solidifies it, gives it credibility, proves that it actually is true. People die, but people don't rise again. And people certainly don't rise again when they have prophesied over and over again that they're going to rise again. It's the evidence that shows us and shows even his disciples that what Jesus is saying is true. And in this particular text of Scripture, this uh, Mark 10, 45, we hear uh, that, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Messiah who must suffer. It's a violent death. This being a, a ransom for many is this payment is made, a payment uh, exchanging sin for the sacrifice. This, this great exchange takes place. But he is also a servant in that he, he serves us by giving of himself. So Jesus ultimately is not only the Son of God, but he is also then as the Son of God considered to be the suffering servant. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And friends, what we've seen so far then in Mark's gospel is this. The first part of Mark's gospel, primarily Jesus is focusing on the person of Christ. That's not just limited to those chapters, but the primary purpose there is that. And then the second half is what we call the work of Christ, what Jesus came to do, what he accomplished by virtue of coming to the cross, hanging on the cross, dying, and ultimately rising from the tomb. Now the question that we are left with and that the disciples and the women are left with is, what will you do? So here we ask the question now, how the gospel continues. We've seen how it began, we've seen how it unfolds, but now as we get to the end of this gospel, we're going to see how the gospel continues. And the question here is how you respond to the resurrection. And to answer that question, we need to consider something of the structure of Mark's gospel uh, revealed by the words torn open and torn in two. There is, in my opinion, what we consider, we often call a, a, a bookend or a top and tail in the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to notice um, in, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, And when he came up out of the water, this was Jesus' baptism, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, the New American, it just says, coming from the clouds or something like that. It's, very, it's a very soft translation. This is a violent word. This is a word that means ripped apart. And God is penetrating the clouds to speak at Jesus' baptism. All right, so he's tearing through. He's breaking in, literally, is what's happening. God is breaking in, announcing to all those that are there that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God. And it's an official divine announcement that is taking place. Now, if you go to Mark chapter 15, and it's a passage we've already read, but we'll begin reading in verse 37. Mark chapter 15. We have another tearing that takes place. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, just in case you're wondering, from top to bottom. So not only was there a breaking in, but by virtue of that tearing, there was a breaking up. There was now, for everyone who was a follower of Christ, the freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace. The, the Old Testament system had been, I would say, satisfied or, or changed. The economy of the Old Testament is now changing to the economy of the New Testament. A sacrifice has been made once for all. And now, with the veil torn, we have freedom by virtue of Christ's death to come boldly to God himself. So a new era is being ushered in. And now every believer, as I said, can come boldly. This, friends, this is no small thing. And, and the tearing in, the breaking in, and the breaking up mark, really, the earthly ministry of Jesus. Beginning and end. And so we, we have left in Mark's gospel, then, the record of his burial and the record of his resurrection. So you see where Mark is going. You see what he's doing. He's giving the, the, the ministry of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and now we're finishing up with this burial and resurrection part. And, and I would like to put it this way. Although it doesn't say torn. I think there is something that's going on here that we can say there was a breaking in, there's a breaking up, and there's a breaking out because there now is a church being formed. There is something that is happening now by virtue of what takes place on this resurrection day. A new era has begun, marked by new life, by celebration, by awe, wonder, fear, and astonishment. Read verse 8 of chapter 16 again. And they, this is talking about the women, went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. Now, I'm still trying to wrap my hands around how are you seized and fleeing at the same time, right? And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It still seems strange that they would be afraid. Mark closes his gospel with fear. But friends, fear has been the steady response of man to the breaking in of the power of God through the gospel. It is the fear that the disciples experienced when Jesus stilled the storm. <gasps> Who is this? It is the fear of the, 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 the garrisons when Jesus delivered the legion of demons into the pigs. I mean, they saw his power on display. 
It is the fear of the disciples as they saw Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem to die on the cross. It's like, what is going on? And they were amazed as we read, and they were full of fear. It is this fear that is the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. So friends, this fear is a right response. Let's consider these four words again. Let's just think about what they were feeling and experiencing by virtue of these words. We see in the, in the text here, there's, there's alarm. Right? The messenger says, don't be alarmed. Why? Because they're alarmed. Because it says that they were alarmed. They're alarmed by what they see. They're alarmed by what they don't see. Right? They see a stone rolled away. They don't see Jesus' body in the tomb. They are alarmed because they see this, this, this young man who's an angel in the tomb. But they're also alarmed by what they hear. And literally, this is a compound word. It literally means that they are terrified. But then the angel speaks. And there's this next word. They're trembling. This word describes what was happening to their bodies uncontrolled, shaking, trembling. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. Almost get into an accident. Something dangerous happens and you you escape it. And you're just like, This this was not something that they just began to do themselves. This was uncontrollable by virtue of what all was going on in their head as they began to ponder the events of this day. Then there's this word astonishment. It comes from the Greek word ecstasis, from which we get the word ecstasy. It indicates that they were overcome by what they had seen and heard. So you got this trembling going on, but you have this ecstasy, this joy going on, all these emotions at work, because all this stuff now was beginning to, to, to make sense about what Jesus, what, had told them. And then fear, fear. This fear is the the response for any follower of Jesus. The news was too good and too wonderful to grasp all at once. So what is the message of the angel? I just mentioned it here. Notice, though, what he says. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You. Mark's gospel begins with God's messenger announcing what he was about to do. That's John the Baptist. It closes with God's messenger announcing what God has done. And the angel now tells the women to convey a message to the disciples that he is risen. He's not here. Go tell the disciples that he's going before you to Galilee. Now, friends, this isn't just saying, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll meet you at Starbucks. You just go on ahead and wait in line, and I'll be there in a little bit. That's not the idea of going on before you. This expression, going on before you, is, was actually used in Mark's gospel to describe a shepherd that is leading his sheep. He is going before his sheep. It's a word that is used to describe a, a leader of an army standing in front of the army and marching into battle in the front of the army because that leader is a conqueror, is a warrior. So when Jesus says, by virtue of 
speaking through his messenger that he is going before them. What they're hearing is there is something afoot. There is something beginning to happen. There's something that is starting on this very day. Go to Galilee and you're going to find out what Jesus has in store for you. And we know the story. We know what happens. The book of of Acts tells us the impact that these people had on the world. And so Mark ends rather abruptly and leaves us with an open-ended question. What will I do in response to all that I have seen and heard through the pages of this gospel about the person and work of Jesus that is verified, that is solidified, that is evidenced by virtue of his rising from the dead. What is he compelling me to do? How does that resurrection affect me now? So the answer to the question is this, simply this. Following Jesus, the Son of God, After all that, that seems really light, doesn't it? Give me something really, really solid to sink my teeth into. Okay, let's move on, all right? What does that mean? To be a follower of Jesus Christ means, first of all, that there must be belief. At the beginning of this gospel, here's what it says in verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is Mark's aim in writing this gospel account. He's writing this to to Jews and to Gentiles in Rome, and as they read this gospel tract, this gospel letter, his desire is that they will hear about who Jesus is, they'll see what Jesus came to do, and that as a result they will believe that that actually is true by virtue of the witness, by virtue of the testimony, by virtue of all the evidence that he's giving and that they will repent of their sins, and they'll bow down to him as the Son of God. Friends, that's the beginning part of following Jesus, the Son of God. But it's also living now as a disciple of Jesus, And there's a lot we could say from the gospel. I just narrowed it down maybe to three statements that would kind of give us some ideas. Chapter 9, verse 7. Again, God speaking. This is my beloved son. And he says, listen to him. This is the transfiguration. It's calling the disciples not only to be around Jesus, but to listen to what he has to say. And we find his teaching in the Gospel of Mark as he goes into different places. Most of Mark is what Jesus does, but there are portions of it where he is teaching, and we're called to listen. We're also called to follow him. And he gets into that in chapter 8 in particular. After After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ... Jesus says, well, okay, you know what? If you are going to believe that, this is what it means. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Or he said this also. Saving your life means losing it. And you have to lose your life in order to save it. This is all discipleship stuff. 
listen to me. Follow him. And then from chapter 13, I think, in particular, which would be the Olivet Discourse, what we have here is, is this, this news that, you can, yeah, you can follow me, you can listen to me, but you also need to be ready for what's ahead. He was preparing his disciples during his earthly ministry, not about just who he is and what he was going to do, but ultimately what they were going to be doing. And just listen to a couple, of, a couple of verses from chapter 13. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. You're going to be persecuted, but through that persecution, you're going to be thrust into places where you can testify to who I am and what I have done. And just think about Paul and Peter and the places that God took them to stand before these rulers and authorities and to testify about who Jesus is. It came through persecution. Verse 13 of chapter 13, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, you just, just got to think, when, when the disciples realized, when these women realized that Jesus had risen from the tomb, all the things that started to click in their head, all the things that started to happen in their heart, and they're remembering what Jesus had taught them over here, they're remembering what Jesus had said over here, they're remembering what he had promised and, and how he had foretold things, and things are now beginning to, to click in gear. And so they're not just running in the garden for no reason. They're running in the garden for fear of the, of the, of the incredible reality that he is, he is risen. But packed with that, pregnant with that, is also all that he said is yet to take place. Something is about to happen. This is exciting. This is joyful. Because we thought he was done. He was gone. But now because of the resurrection, he's alive. He is alive, and these things that he said would happen to him have happened, and he has risen. Something's afoot, and we're going to go to Galilee, and we're going to find out what he says. And then there's also what I'm calling resurrection hope. And I'm, I'm stepping outside of Mark's gospel here for a reason. Because Mark, if you remember, was a companion of Peter. And um, our best understanding is that much of what Mark actually writes down is testimony given by his experience with Peter or things that Peter relate to him about the life of Jesus. And so much of Mark has to do with Peter. You see that by a few little statements. You actually see it here in the resurrection account. Why? Because the, the messenger says, go tell the disciples and Peter, Right? So there's this, there's this little play, there's things in, in, this, in this gospel that just kind of like, okay, wait, this is true. This is something going on here. So my point here is to say, let's, let's think about what Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, which is an incredible resurrection passage. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
See, those who've repented and believed in the gospel have now experienced the power of the resurrection in their lives. They have, as Peter describes here, a living hope. This isn't a a heavenly wish. This is a living certainty about one's citizenship in heaven. Now hear this, friends. We live by the power of the cross. The cross has taken place. The cross has established our, our new position Uh, with Christ because we have attributed his righteousness to us by virtue of our belief in him and our repentance. And so the the, the cross fuels us then to live our lives for him. But there's something else going on. We have the prospect of eternity. We have the certain hope of, of what is yet to come. We know that we are citizens of heaven. We are in this already not yet kingdom. And so we're being, we're being pushed on by the power of the cross and we're being pulled by the reality and the prospect of heaven. And so we are, we are living now with hope in the gospel that comes via, through the resurrection. And friends, this is, this is where the power for living comes from. So when we have a baptism, what, is it, what does it mean? The baptism is pointing to the death, the burial, and resurrection. That's why when we, we baptize, at least what I do, I say, buried in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection, or Jesus' death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. You are raised to newness of life. It's all because of the resurrection now. We live in that power. And friends, that is incredible stuff. Powerful stuff. Helpful stuff. Because our, this Christian walk is not just a matter of, well, keep these rules, do these things. It is spirit-filled powerful living for the glory of God that comes via the power of the resurrection. So we have this resurrection hope. But we're also having this resurrection news. Now, this is chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, we looked at it a little bit earlier. You may want to turn there, but it says this. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. This is the end of the transfiguration until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now the key word here is until. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, he's risen. The until has been fulfilled. And now... The disciples, the three that were there, telling, explaining, clarifying, proclaiming, begin the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is called, in chapter 1, verse 15, the good news of the gospel of God. But the disciples go and they proclaim this resurrection News. You just see there, I just caught it as I was going through it at the end. I didn't plan it this way, this knowing, applying, a proclaiming thing. It's all there. We are called to, to see who Jesus is, to, to grasp why he came. But we're also called to, to live our lives out of that. And we're also called to proclaim it. 
And friends, I want to I end today with a very simple concluding thought. Nothing new. We've said it. You've heard it explained. But I want to explain it one more time to give it a little bit more emphasis and meaning from the text of Scripture. The tradition of the church on Resurrection Sunday is to say, He is risen, and for other people to respond, What? He is risen indeed. And Tim, during the course of our worship, explained the fact that this is not He was risen. It's important that it says he is risen. But I want you to notice, even based on what we said here, he, <laughs> this is Jesus, the Son of God, the one revealed in the Gospels, the one explained in the epistles. It's he. He's the one we're talking about here. And we're told that he's risen. The resurrection actually took place. This is what he came to do. His death, burial, and resurrection all wrapped up together here. But now we have this little word is. And this is where we live. He is risen, which means that he is alive now. Not was alive. He is alive. And he is alive to the point and to the extent that he continues to be alive, not just, I would say, practically and pragmatically in his own being, but practically and fully and completely in the life of those who are his. You live your life out of the power of the resurrection. You live your life out of the power of Jesus who is alive. That means that he is very present with us. That means that he is counseling us by virtue of the Holy Spirit at work in us. The Godhead is at work. He's alive. Not was, not will be. He is, and it is a continual reality for every child of God. And the fact that he is alive means that we are presently with Jesus. We are powerfully with Jesus. We are purposefully with Jesus. And we live out of the promises that Jesus gives us also. Friends, he is risen. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We've, this morning breezed through one of your precious gospels. But Lord, I ask that it gives us a a fresh awareness that your resurrection is not some isolated aspect of the passion story, that it is interconnected with all that you came to do. And that these disciples and these women in particular are, are simply reflecting what, what we should be doing and thinking as we hear the beautiful news that, that you are alive. Lord, we may not tremble, but we are amazed. We are moved. We are humbled. We are overcome that all that you have said, all that has been prophesied about you has been fulfilled up to its point. And there are still things, Lord, that need to be fulfilled, that are yet to be fulfilled because it's all part of your plan. But Lord, you are alive. You came. You humbled yourself. 
You, you, you turned your face toward Jerusalem. You knew what you came to do. Yes, Lord, you even struggled in your humanity in the garden because you knew the weight of the suffering that you would experience, and yet you pressed on to that cross. And as you hung there, and those people mocked you, and they scorned you, and they laughed at you, and they ridiculed you, and they, they even hurt you on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. You breathed your laps. And a pagan soldier watching it all stands in awe and says, surely this must be the Son of God. And then, Lord, as your body is laid in the tomb and it's getting late and they have to leave and they want to come back and they find the tomb empty and you're gone and they hear the news that you're alive, Lord. It's just it's an amazing Incredible story, Lord, not something that can be made up by man with all the evidence, all the proofs that, that are present, even just in the word of God, Lord. It's just so clear that you are who you say you are, that you came to do exactly what you set out to do. And Lord, we are the objects of your affection. And the life that we live now through the power of the resurrection is a life, Lord, that we want to live for your glory in awe of the fact that you would even be willing to humble yourself to demonstrate who you are, what you came for, and that you truly are God. Lord, may we be a church, may we be a people who love to learn about living our lives out of that power. May we be people, Lord, that, that are desiring to, to, be, to be taught and strengthened by your truth, not just for our own growth in Christ, but, Lord, even so that we can proclaim it to others, whether it be family, whether it be friends, co-workers, neighbors. Lord, may we be growing in you, but, Lord, may we also be used by you as proclaimers of the good news. Lord, because you are alive. And Lord, you have risen. And the world needs to know. Lord, even if, it's, even if we were the only church on this planet, Lord, would you give us a passion to live this out in a way that would honor and glorify you? And Lord, I am aware, very aware, that there can be people on a Sunday like this who have never bowed the knee to you, who have never seen you for who you are, who have just maybe seen you in a, in a surface way, that you're kind of a, a cool guy from history or a, some, a, a figure of a religion. But Lord, may your word resonate in the heart of that person to give evidence and, and proof and reality, Lord, that you are who you say you are. Lord, may you, may you bring life to a dead soul today because of your gospel, because of your cross, because of your resurrection. Oh, Lord, we need you. We rejoice over you. We love you. We fear you. We adore you and we are unworthy of you. And Lord, all of that wrapped together, we wanna to say thank you. You are a God who is worthy to be praised. 
May we do that today in your name. Amen.